The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, that is certainly a part of the promise that we look toward and, and hope for, but also, uh, you know, it's one of those things, sometimes it's easier to sing than to actually believe or, uh, or, or trust in, and it sounds a little good, too good to be true at times. Uh, by the way, my, my name's Jason, I'm one of the pastors here, just not a random guy who decided to jump up here and start talking, uh, though that'd be fun. Uh, and uh, so before we jump into God's Word and, and look at the, the story behind uh, that original you know, Palm Sunday, I want to give you guys a chance to, to greet one another and also share with one another some of the peace that that, that song looks forward towards, some of the peace that, that Scott was leading us in prayer for. You know, and just traditionally, it's the passing of the peace. And it's, it's more than just greeting one another. It's generally saying, uh, I want peace to be in your life as well. Hopefully, I've experienced it myself, and I'd love to share it. Or I could use a little bit of that peace, and maybe you could share it with me. And so a traditional way of doing that is to simply say, the peace of Christ be with you, and the response back is, and also with you, good. Or you can just say hi and get a name or whatever. But in the midst of this passing of the peace, I'd like to uh, kind of rile up a little bit of excitement also, because it is Palm Sunday. And so, as you're saying hi to one another, if you would share a, just a very brief, you know, story of one of your more exciting crowd experiences. So, as you're saying hi to somebody, I, I see some RIT hockey fans already, you know, kind of deciding which one to share, uh, you know, and what statue of limitations are doing math in their head, and, uh, but RIT folks can do that, so that's good. Um, but share one of your more exciting crowd moments, whether you were just caught up in the moment, it was, you know, fantastic, or you feared a little bit, you know, maybe you were at that Who concert, some of you were old enough, uh, or something newer, I don't know. So uh, why don't we go ahead and stand up and greet one another. If you're here with family and kids, we keep every, everyone together as much as we can, but if it helps, there's art supplies in the cupboards back there, and kids can hang out in here, or if it helps, you can be in the lobby as well where there's audio and video feeds, so... With that, stand to greet one another, and from me to you, the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you very much. Your most exciting crowd experience.
All right. Any good stories out there? Someone wants to, uh, you know, your exciting crowd moments? Uh, anyone here ever done a little bit of crowd surfing? Any, any hands out there? I have actually done a little bit of, of uh, stage diving at a, uh, at a camp I was an uh, assistant director at. We, uh, the staff at, at times during our, our rather exuberant uh, worship times, <laughs> we would we'd just throw a little bit of a stage diving, crowd surfing in there. Uh, but anyway, um, but I am excited to, uh, to be entering this, this week uh, leading up to Easter, excited to, to be together worshiping. And that's sort of the theme for the day of Palm Sunday, is lots and lots of excitement, right? Uh, it's the palm waving, it's the shouting hosannas, it's all that stuff, which, uh, which time to time I suppose we've done here, keeping it a little down low uh, today. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, and so this, all this excitement surrounding the idea of Palm Sunday, uh, as I was prepping for what we're doing today, got me thinking of, of some of those rather over-the-top, exciting experiences uh, I've had, you know, spiritually in my, in my background. I came to faith in Christ in my teen years. I uh, didn't grow up in a Christian family or a church-going family, but, uh, but in my teen years, uh, primarily through a youth ministry that this, uh, this country church ran, is how I was, I was introduced to Christ. And the, the main context where some of those early formative experiences happened was at the Christian church summer camp, right? <laughs> which if any of you had that experience, uh, one, it can be somewhat terrifying, which even goes to what we'll talk about today, but often it's a very intense, uh, very exciting time. You're there 24-7, you have these friends that you're doing life with, you know, day in, day out that week, there's like sort of chapel worship teaching times every morning. There's, there's something after dinner. And then usually you hang out in your cabins at night with a, hopefully a good counselor. I always had really great counselors. And there'd be sort of these devotional talks and deep discussions that would go long into the night and, and just very intense. And it really, you'd leave camp on this incredible spiritual high, right? And then, you know, you'd be back with your family. <laughs> you'd be back... <laughs> with your normal life. You'd be heading back to school. If you were a counselor, you'd be going off and doing, you know, you know flipping burgers or, you know, going back to college, uh, you know, because I was a camp counselor eventually myself. And invariably, that spiritual high would just produce an even deeper crash afterwards. Anyone have any recovering summer campers here that can relate to that sort of highs and lows? Whether you went to, uh, you know, church camps or not, I suspect all of us can, can relate to those, those mountaintop experiences that are often followed by some really kind of dark valleys. You know, wherever we are spiritually, we've all had those ups and downs, which, which sort of begs the question, especially as we're talking about all the excitement and, and things surrounding this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry of Jesus, you know, it does beg the question for some of us, you know, why does my spiritual life seem to lurch about from the high highs to the low lows? Why is that? Uh, (laughs) How can I faithfully navigate 
between those breathtaking mountaintop experiences and those soul-crushing valleys? You know, is there some mountain pass that I can find instead? Or is it, that's a lot of traveling, you know? <laughs> Not really going anywhere, just up and down, up and down. Um, and for some of us, you know, maybe, you know, you've been following Jesus for a while and, you know, you, you want to take it seriously. You, and so you say to yourself, you know, I want to be enthused and excited about my faith. But I don't want to be goofy on one end of the spectrum or give it my all only to be completely burned out. Or you're sort of exploring and investigating uh, this whole idea of the Christian faith. And I can remember when that was the place I was at. And, you know, in time to time, you know, that sort of comes back anyways. You always have that. But I imagine, you know, saying, you know, I might consider faith and following, but not if it means sort of being bipolar for Jesus. Not to diminish the actual thing. But man, if I got to do it that way, then no, I'm not signing up for this deal. And then we come to these passages like the triumphal entry. And it sure seems like that's where the action is. That's how we're supposed to live this thing out. Um, And so if it's all flag-waving and sloganeering and I've got to sort of shut off part of my brain to be part of the groupthink mob mentality. You know, Christian or not, I don't really want to be a part of that. And so my hope is that as we follow the path Jesus weaves us through here this morning, that we may find a way through that, a little bit of a mountain pass that's not all lurching back and forth. And I think as long as we're not distracted by some of the cacophony, the roar of the crowd, uh, all the pageantry and adrenaline going on, we might be able to see in the midst of that stuff something that speaks to those questions that we just asked, that tension we feel. So why don't we pray and then take a crack at it. So God, we do, uh, we do come before you uh, confessing <laughs> admitting that, that we lurch about many times, that we have these incredible highs and these unbelievable lows, and it just doesn't seem the way it should be. And even for us who are seeking and searching and investigating, uh, if that's the way it's got to be, we're never going to be part of that. And so if there's another way, we pray you'd show us that today, through your word and by the power of your spirit revealing it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, this triumphal entry. We're going to look in the, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Uh, verse 28 is where we'll pick it up. And if you're using those red Bibles there, it's on page 854. But this account, this event, the triumphal entry, the, the, uh, the week leading up to, to the cross and the empty tomb, uh, actually is found in all four Gospels, which may not seem odd to you, except that actually is fairly rare most of the accounts of Jesus' life that we have spread throughout the Gospels, you know, just one or two Gospels will hit upon it. Uh, in part because each Gospel writer was 
trying to communicate the good news of Jesus to different groups of people. So Matthew, speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. He's going to use Jewish idioms and assume they know some things about the scriptures and all that. Mark, uh, he's talking to kind of Roman guys. So it's a lot of short sentences, lots of action, cuts to the chase, over and done with. Uh, right now, my son Jaron, who's about to be 12 year old, he's reading through the book of Mark. And, you know, he loves it because it's just, you know, it's just like playing an Xbox game. Uh, it's just very fast action. Great stuff. So if you're a guy uh, who likes, you know, some exciting stuff, just read Mark. Don't get bogged down in John, which, man, is all, you know, just poetry and metaphor. And, and so if you have an artistic mindset or. You know, you like thinking deep thoughts but not really knowing what you're talking about. Go right to John, right? No. Uh, and then there's Luke. There's Luke, which happens to be my favorite of the gospel writers because he's, he's not Jewish himself. He's a Gentile. He's also a physician and seems to be a bit um, fastidious, kind of deliberate. He's the one who says, I'm going to go find the eyewitness accounts, whoever's still alive, and get all the details. And he's the one we're going to... Um, lean to the most for this passage. But if it's in all four Gospels, maybe we ought to pay attention, even more so than we otherwise would. So, I'm going to pick it up in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 28. So Jesus has just finished telling one of his mind-bending parables that you know, keeps everyone awake for days, not quite knowing what he meant. So he drops that bomb, leaves them with that, and then it picks it up in verse 28. And it says, after he said this, oh, I meant to mention this. As we read this scripture, Scott talked about this a little bit. Uh, there's a bunch of ways we can come at scripture. Uh, we can just sort of read it to try to understand the words and the content. But another way of going at it is to try to enter the context and actually be part of the scriptural narrative. Uh, and so I'm going to encourage you as we go through this uh, story of scripture to try to place yourself in the midst of it. Uh, so kind of do something that's often called an Ignatian reading of Scripture. Uh, It's named for Ignatius of Loyola. He was this incredible church reformer. He saw that that the church was spiritually dead, and he wanted to see it revitalized and revived and for it to get a pulse again. Uh, He, however, did not want to break away from the church he was a part of, like some of our Protestant forebears that that, uh, we have in our heritage in the the stream that we're part of. Uh, He did it from within the Catholic Church, which... You know, for some of us who have a little view of, you know, who got everything right and who got everything wrong, that may throw us off a bit. Uh, Ignatius, you can, you can trust in the stuff that he put down there. But he had this way of approaching spiritual formation that asked those who went through this, uh, like, month-long set of exercises to enter the story, to imagine, you know, what it feels um, to come before Jesus, you know, your guilt, the, the seeking forgiveness, the sense of grace and welcome. And so take that idea and then apply it to a passage like this that has lots of characters and, uh, and details. And so imagine you're in the story, the sights, the smells, the emotions you might feel, and try to enter it a little more so as we do this. All right? So Luke 19 says, After Jesus had said, you know, all the stuff that he said, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So there's his destination. Uh, And then before he ever gets there, it says, When he came near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt, a little donkey colt, that has never been ridden. 
untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying that? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So the Lord needs it. So imagine you're one of those two disciples. And Jesus is asking you, in essence, to go steal a baby donkey. You know, and the, and the password is, say, the Lord needs it. So I'm getting, this is me, I'm getting a little bit excited, a little bit nervous, but, you know, stealing a donkey, that could be fun. Yeah. Right? But think about that. Think about what they're doing. So already, I bet their pulse is quickening a little bit. Let's go get this donkey. Let's go jack a donkey. Here we go, right? And so two of the disciples, they head off. Uh, and they got the password. So it's very conspiratorial. There's already this intrigue building. Not to mention it's the Passover season. So there's sort of a sense of anticipation, celebration already in the air. Uh, you throw in some, some donkey poaching and, uh, you know, that's a good recipe right there. So... So verse 32 says, so they, those who were sent departed, and they found it as Jesus had told them. So again, that would be kind of weird. Go there, and there it is, this little baby donkey. Found it as he told them. And as they were untying it, so think how you might do that, you know? Started looking around, untying this little donkey. The mom's right there. Who knows if she's excited about you taking the little baby donkey or not. Uh, as they were untying it, its owners asked them, So here it comes. Hey. Oh, now what do we do? Why are you untying the colt? And so they said. How do you imagine their tone of voice was as they answered? Here's how I read it. The Lord needs it. (laughs) Wait for it. Wait for it. We're going to pull this caper off, right? And so they take the donkey. The owners let them take it. And it says, and then they brought it to Jesus. And noticing that there's really nothing, you know, fitting for Jesus to sit on, they, it says they throw their cloaks on the colt, make a little sort of soft blanket saddly thing there because, you know, their, their, their rabbi is going to ride this thing. Um, they set Jesus on it. And again, I, I imagine, because again, Jesus is fully human, and the disciples, even more so, I think I've mentioned before, I think there's some slapstick in Scripture. I just imagine Jesus and, you know, and who wants to help him get on the donkey, right? You know, probably Judas is elbowing everyone out because he wants to be there. John, you know, he's, he's probably crying or writing a poem. Peter's, you know, <laughs> oh, you, know <laughs> you know, wrestling the thing. He's got the, the little donkey in a headlock, even though it's just standing there. You know, and this, they, help, they help Jesus Andrew's wondering why he keeps getting left out of everything. He's over talking to the mom donkey. Um, No one listens to me. They don't care what I think. Every time Jesus asks for someone, it's Peter, James, John. I get left out. So they get Jesus, you know, hoisted up on this little baby donkey, this young donkey, and they start heading out. And it says, as Jesus rode along, Other people kept spreading their cloaks on the road as well. So this is getting odd. There's some odd crowd behavior going on. 
But you've been to a St. Patrick's Day parade, right? You do different things when you're in a crowd. And so the first guy, you know, who sort of takes his, you know, his shirt off and throws it there in the ground, everyone's like, that's weird. Then the second guy does it, the third and the fourth. And then the rest of us that still have our coats on are like, what are we missing here? And before you know it, you know, everyone's in tank tops because it's just coats and cloaks everywhere. But there's some exciting things going on here. This means something to these people. In fact, uh, Matthew's account. So if you want to jot this down just so you can go check it on your own, uh, Matthew 21, verse, chapter 21 is where this same account happens. Matthew gives some more details because he's also talking, Matthew's talking to a primarily Jewish audience. Luke sort of edits out the things that, you know, the Greco-Roman crew wouldn't get as much. But Matthew also mentions this laying out of the garments on the, on the animal and on the road, but he also talks about them tearing branches off the trees, and throwing them in the path, but also waving them around. Because to the Jewish people, this means something. It's like being at the RIT hockey game and, you know, waving your colors, right? This is a, this is a national symbol. There's some weight to what they're doing. And it's turned into not just a parade. This is turning into a political rally. This is a, this is a protest movement. They're, they're getting into it. It's all part of this this traditional Jewish way of receiving royalty. So for some reason, they are attributing to Jesus a whole bunch more than just a guy riding on a donkey. That there's some symbolism and something in the air and everyone's getting caught up and the adrenaline is pumping and they're acting as though Jesus is somehow royal. And remember the context. They're in occupied territory. They're an oppressed people. They're under the yoke of Rome. They haven't been free for generations. And they're talking about someone else who's royal besides Caesar, besides that joke, Herod, you know, the the little puppet king they've put in place locally. Um, And so this isn't just a parade. This is the beginning of a revolution. The blood is pumping. And so you can imagine those in the crowd kind of ascribing to Jesus all their hopes and dreams. You know, and maybe you have some of those who are sort of on the left end of the spectrum, um, who, uh, you know, who hate the injustice of it all, the oppression. You know, and maybe they start a little cheer, you know, no justice, no peace, right? There's no justice, no peace. They're waving their branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground, you know, burning their tunics because they didn't have bras. You know, whatever's, whatever's going on there, they're, they're, they're just into it. No justice, no. So you got, you got the folks that left in this spectrum. But hey, everyone loves a parade, right? So I bet you have some, some right-wingers as well. You know, Judas, you know, he's one of the disciples. This guy kind of, you know, cheats on his taxes, but makes, makes, want to make sure everyone takes care of their money the right way. And uh, he's a zealot. And so I bet there's zealots in the crowd that they'd like a little military action. So it's uh, live free or die. Live free or die. So all this cheering, I suspect, is going on. But it's not until someone decides to co-opt 
some religious language. Let's make this spiritual, that people really get into it. Because nothing mixes better uh, than revolutionary politics and some religious fervor, right? That's a good combo. It's going to be an exciting day, am I right? This is a good start to the week of Holy Week. And so, in the season of, of Passover, it would be very common for those who were on pilgrimage, you know, who lived outside Jerusalem as they're traveling into the city. They'd travel together in family groups, and then sort of as close as they got, the more they'd band together. They would sing songs. They would sing from their, their psalm book, the psalms. And so literally, everyone in this crowd starts singing from the same hymn book and gets on the same page. And there's one particular collection of psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. This, uh, these six psalms that was uh, referred to as the Hallel. H-A-L-L-E-L. And they'd be sung regularly. So these would be fresh in their mind. And in Psalm 118, it's the culmination of, of all these hopes and dreams for deliverance and, and redemption and freedom. And they all start singing the same song. And Matthew describes it this way. That as they're singing these songs fresh in their mind, they now attach it to Jesus and what he's doing. They start singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the chanting and the cheering continue. Back to Luke's account. Verse 37. It says, as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives. So the landscape there, as they're heading towards Jerusalem, they go down the southern slope of the Mount of Olives. And right here in this passage, if it's describing how they go there, you get to a place where all of a sudden Jerusalem opens up for a bit. You can see it in the distance. And so flag-waving, cheering, you know, singing hymns. This is royalty. And then you see Jerusalem, your holy city, occupied by that cancer that's Rome. The crowd goes wild. It says the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud cheer for all the deeds of power that they had seen. Notice what they focus on. All the deeds of power that they'd seen Jesus do over the last three years of his earthly ministry. Saying, and here's where Luke interprets a little bit for his Greco-Roman audience. Um, because admit it, nobody knows what Hosanna means, right? We sing it. We have, you know, it's like hallelujah and amen. We really don't. They're just words. But they're exciting words, so we, we sing them. And we sing them loudly. Uh, we don't know what they mean. Uh, Luke, knowing that, um, you know, describes and kind of paraphrases it as peace in heaven, is what Hosanna means. But I also think Luke, I suspect, adds a few more precise details to the cheering that was going on. He writes a, his gospel later, and you sort of find Luke sort of filling in details the other ones gloss over or miss. And hear how Luke describes the cheering. And see if you pick up a new word that's not in the original Psalm 118. And Matthew didn't have in there. Verse 38. The whole crowd was cheering, just going nuts, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. King. Again, we hear that word, and we're so far removed from even the concept of king. We've also, in our own context, made it this sort of title for Jesus. 
Imagine you're in some you know, dictatorship and a, and a local hero who opposes that regime you know, comes riding in and you start chanting uh, El Presidente you know, for this guy. Those are words of rebellion and sedition. This is a big deal. So where would they get this crazy idea to call Jesus king? You know, what is it about him riding the donkey and those things? Well, maybe they're remembering that prophecy from, from Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here's the picture. They really like that triumph and victorious part, right? But also, it was only a year before, if you know the story at all, that out in Galilee, you know, out in the countryside a little bit, they'd actually tried to force Jesus to be king, which is kind of funny that you'd kind of take someone by force and say, now you're our king, rule us, and you better do it, uh, and, you know, Jesus, he's, you know, he's sneaky. He's got some skills there. He slips away. And, oh, did to get to make him king. But they're probably figuring the timing was just off. There's a lot of groundwork to lay. Jesus had to put some things in order. And this must finally be it. Because he's on a donkey. We're waving palm branches. It's Passover. Surely God is on our side. Here's our king. And sort of addled by the adrenaline, I think they miss the, uh, the humble and riding on a donkey, the humble part. They just want the victorious, triumphant part. They have a bloodlust. So they probably miss some of the symbolism. But some of the folks there, the Pharisees, they get what's going on. You know, Matthew, in his account, says uh, in verse 10 of Matthew 21, says the whole city was in turmoil. But the Pharisees, understood the importance of what was happening. This wasn't just a parade. This was a revolution forming. And they've seen this storyline before. Jesus wasn't the first revolutionary to come on the scene. For several of the previous generations, it happened time and again. We're finally going to throw off the yoke of Rome. And every single time, blood runs through the streets. Literally hundreds get crucified. And these Pharisees are fearful and convinced that will happen again. And so worried about the wrath of Rome, I suspect, verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, order your disciples to stop. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones themselves would shout out. So it's an exciting story. It's a triumphal entry. But why does it matter to us? And what about all those things we said at the beginning about the highs and the lows? Is this just another story to make us feel guilty that we're not part of the crowd, that we're not all excited? Is this a triumphal entry? Or is it really a tragic mob scene? Is the reason it's in all four Gospels 
less about do this and more about a cautionary tale. You know, perhaps this isn't just a, a fun bit of scriptural pageantry, you know, where we get to wave palm branches and the kids run around the sanctuary. And, uh, probably should have done that, right? Sorry. But we do that, we sing songs, you know, we, we sing songs with words like Hosanna, Hosanna, not having any idea what those words mean, but it's exciting, so we, you know, we sing them. Maybe it's a profound warning against an adrenaline-laced faith. So why does this matter? That we get this story right? This path Jesus is on and what we might learn amidst all the noise and cacophony and chaos? Well, remember back to those opening questions that we asked ourselves. Why do I lurch between the highs and the lows? Uh, How can I be enthused about my faith without being goofy or burned out? Why would I even consider following Jesus um, if that's what it looks like? And if this is what it looks like, no thanks. But we know how this story plays out over the course of the week. There's some strong indictment of this approach to spirituality. It's an approach that I want to warn us against. Let me coin a phrase here. I'm going to call it fight or flight spirituality. Any folks familiar with that concept of fight or flight, that physiological response? When does that kick in? Whenever we're confronted with something that's unexpected, when we sense things are at risk, whether it's our own safety or our state of mind, you know, it's not always literal though our body actually doesn't know the difference, whether, it's a, whether there's actually a tiger there or it's just you know, a soundtrack with a roar, we have the same response, right? Um, and what happens when we go into this fight-or-flight mode? And I don't think it's going to be a stretch here, metaphorically, to get to the spirituality part, but you, know, you get your two little adrenal glands there on the top of your kidneys. They, they just start squirting that stuff in the bloodstream. You know, and our body goes into a new mode. We start sending blood to the extremities so that we can kind of raise a fist or beat feet, right? The only problem is, you know, that brain that we've got is awfully demanding. It uses a whole lot of, whole lot of blood and oxygen. And since we're just going to be fighting or fleeing, you know, we don't really need to waste all of it up here. We'll just, we'll just kind of pull that blood back a bit. You know, we'll only get up to the brain stem. And so... When we go into fight-or-flight mode, we actually get more stupid, more scared, and more violent. Have I described any spirituality that you've observed or experienced in those three words? Again, whether you're a Christian, devout, whether you're nominal, and this is a time of year, you better come and check in, or you are exploring, or even more so, really doubtful. Stupid, fearful, and violent yeah, you see way too much of that. And it's this kind of thing, this fight-or-flight spirituality. And of course, we need those instincts when life is really on the line, but rarely is that true spiritually. And as beautiful as those God-given emotions are, um, they're never meant to rule us. And so I think one of the reasons we lurch around 
and we crash and burn and, and go out, kind of jones after that next big experience is because we're addicted to this kind of spirituality. We actually like a good flight or a good fight or a little bit of both. We'd rather raise a fist or beat feet uh, than just be at peace. That's not exciting. And when the pressure rises, that peace vanishes. And in an emotional time of year like this, because this Easter season is, you know, and I think it's good that it is. I love the celebration and the expectation. Uh, but for some of us who maybe have been away from the faith for a while, you know, you have the emotions of nostalgia. Might be drawn in, but often there's a little bit of guilt there. You know, got to get back. Um, again, those who are exploring, there's, I think there's some fear and anger that sometimes accompanies questioning the faith as well. But I wonder if when Jesus talks about uh, worshiping God with all your body, heart, soul, and mind, that he really means don't just stop at the brain stem. Right? And when he says, you know, have a childlike faith, uh, that's different than having you know, sort of a reptilian faith, you know, depending on your view of how the, yeah, we don't need to get in that argument. Um, but that, that very primitive part of the brain that just, you know, is scared, angry, you know. That's no way to approach our faith. And what's fascinating, that when we actually engage our whole mind and try to seek that peace, that peace in the midst of the chaos, that we reverse some of what's going on. That those questions that we asked ourselves earlier, that are a little bit deeper, that are a little more nuanced, that actually, you know, starts to engage that higher reasoning. And in fact, our better part of our brain starts wrenching control back, starts pulling the blood away from the places that makes us want to raise a fist or take off. And so, how do we apply this, this idea of, I think, avoiding disdaining a fight-or-flight spirituality so that the lurching about and the fear and the, and the anger that sometimes go with, with how we approach our faith. Uh, well, go back to the story. Go back to the account of that first Palm Sunday and see who you identify with. Because that may give you a sense of, of where you skew. Maybe you identify with the, and you don't get to be Jesus, okay? <laughs> Take him off the table. Um, and even the disciples, I suppose, are a category, but they just join in with the crowd. So maybe you associate with the crowd. And what's their frame of mind at this point? They have a bloodlust. They want justice. You know, no justice, no peace, live free or die. They're all agreeing. We got a king. We're going to wipe these people out. And maybe that sort of appeals to you, except when it falls short, when you kind of take on life as though it'll always be triumphant. It'll always be victorious. And then you have your... Then you're set back a bit. I'll put it that way. What do you do with that? 
Or maybe you're like the Pharisees. You've seen this story before, and you're fearful. And those seem like they're opposites, right? Except what happens a few days later? Everyone switches. So it turns out it's the same, si- same coin, two different sides. The Pharisees are crying for blood later. The crowd, oh, they also just sort of shift their bloodlust towards Jesus and his failure to be king, but a lot of them then flee in fear. And so the same Peter, who when Jesus is arrested, you know, goes into fight mode, pulls out his sword and cuts off that guy's ear, Jesus slaps it back on, um, is the same guy who just hours later tries to flee under the cover of darkness and denies Jesus three times. So those aren't opposites. They're the same thing. So as I was looking at this, I was trying to think, what is the opposite? If I don't want to be part of the crowd, I don't want to be kind of the Pharisees, who do I get to be in this story? I love Chesterton's take on that, that Scott read earlier. That in the midst of all the chaos, there's only one actor who's just calmly carrying Jesus where he needs to be and isn't all caught up in the chaos and the pageantry and the noise, but is just serving. You can't serve if you're fleeing. And you certainly can't serve with a closed fist raised high. And so my encouragement to us as we go into this exciting, emotional season is to not get back on that roller coaster of fight or flight, even though it feels good for a moment, but then it crashes hard, but to kind of find that mountain pass between the two. And instead seek to serve and find a peace And how's that peace described? It's a peace that passes all understanding. It shoots up past the brainstem, right? It gets the whole person. And that would be my prayer for us, that we would find peace, because it'd be so easy to give an encouraging, exciting message on the triumph of Jesus here on Palm Sunday and sort of miss the point that Good Friday's coming. And the empty tomb. But there's going to be highs and lows. So, do you have peace in your life? Or do you lurch about? If you're a follower of Jesus... Is it a roller coaster ride? If you're someone who's exploring, investigating, or, or doubting profoundly, are you doing it from a place of, of fear or anger? And ironically, and I can relate to this in my own life, this, this very thing you disdain about those Christ followers and all their fear and anger. It's the same thing driving you. And so my prayer is for peace.
just to deep, deep breath. Breathe deep the breath of God and not fall for the sucker's choice between fight or flight. Because in all areas of our life, emotional, mental, and spiritual, adrenaline makes us stupid. It makes us angry. It makes us fearful. Feels good for a bit, and then it crashes hard. And Jesus actually was fully aware of what was going on. The lectionary, which we we use to choose the scriptures in this season, likes to end at verse 40. Because what does it say? If even these people were quiet, the very rocks would cry out. How exciting is that? But if you read the epilogue, verse 41 and 42, you realize this is in all four Gospels to warn us. Because here's what verse 41 and 42 say. It says, as Jesus came near you know, and saw the city, now they're right up close to Jerusalem now, it says he wept over it. Saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. It's not a fight. It's not taken off. But if you'd recognize the things that make for peace, then what does he say? But now they are hidden from your eyes because that stuff makes us angry, scared, and stupid. And we can't see it. So fight or flight, that's no way to follow Jesus. And I think only his blood can kind of cleanse those toxins out of us. Let's pray. So God, we do, uh, we do recognize that this is a struggle. And sadly, it's one that gets reinforced by the way we tell ourselves these stories from Scripture and sort of leave off. You know, a couple key verses. The way we love to focus on the triumphant, victorious part of the prophecies and sort of gloss over the humility. We love the idea that you are a victorious king. We forget that you go to your throne by way of being a suffering servant. And so God, bring us peace and less of this lurching around between the highs and the lows. Bring us your peace that passes all understanding. And if it even means kind of humbling ourselves, not just being part of the crowd or just another Pharisee, but something as humble and simple as that little donkey, if it means we can calmly and faithfully carry you to the people who need you most, Jesus, that's what we pray. So make that real this Easter season as we celebrate, as we get excited, as we mourn and are torn deeply by your sacrifice and as we're reminded of all that you've done to bring us to you, to give us your peace. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Oh, 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 oh,
This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.